What's going on, guys, and welcome back to the Against All Odds podcast. It's just me today. I'm going to sit down and do a Q&A. I'm going to answer all the questions that you guys submitted via Instagram. So if you're not following me on Instagram at Become Elite or at Matt Sheldon 23 go follow me real quick. But basically, I just said submit some questions. I went through the hundreds of questions and try to pick some, uh, some good talking points. So let's roll the intro, and we'll get right into the first question. Okay, the, uh, the first one that I chose is from Joaco Gonzalez, and he asks, or he says, talk about the foreigners in the U.S. pro system, the difficulty, the visa, the limits, et cetera. Thank you, Matt. Um, so, so yeah, pretty much any time that you are a player and you're going to go play in a foreign country, um, you are usually considered a international player, a foreign player, and that usually comes with stricter restrictions and visa policies and everything. Um, so for example, when I went into Iceland and I went on trial in Iceland, I'm a foreign player. I'm a U.S. citizen. I don't have Icelandic citizenship. So when I try to play in Iceland, um, I am now a foreign player. And that team that I trialed with, they only had three foreign spots for their team. So that means that even if like, if let's say they sign three players, one from Nigeria, one from Mexico and one from the U S they can no longer sign any more foreign players to their roster. And every league, a professional league across the world has some sort of restriction like that in the USL. I'm honestly not a thousand percent sure. I think we have seven foreigner spots per team, but don't quote me on that. I'm not a hundred percent positive. Um, but and so that is honestly, that's one of the larger amounts of, of foreign players that are allowed on a team. So the U.S. is actually kind of lenient when it comes to foreign players. Um, now, th that doesn't mean that it's easy because, again, you're as a foreigner coming into a USL team, you're now competing for one of those seven spots versus one of 25, 30 spots if you're a domestic player. And then again, anytime a club wants to sign you and you're a foreigner, it it just becomes a little bit more difficult for them to sign you. They have to work not only on getting you a work permit or visa to play for the team, but they're also bringing you in from a different country. There's the culture shock of that, the living situation, the car situation. So um, they definitely, when, when signing foreigners, usually foreigners are going to be towards like the the more the most wanted players of the team they're gonna they're saving their foreign spots for um higher paid players players of more recognition coming down from a bigger team uh, or a bigger league etc so same way that it works in the u.s it works in almost every country around the globe the only big exception to that is if you're an eu uh, like a European Union citizen, you know, you're living over in Europe unless you're from Italy, then you can go play in other EU countries without really being considered uh, a foreigner, which I'm jealous about. Uh, anyway, next question from Denelson Vasquez. And he asks, what went through your mind before and after dropping out of college? Um, I would say before I was, I was pretty much weighing the decision for the six months or actually up to a year before I actually dropped out. I'd finished my junior season, had a, a pretty standout season, um, knew that I really wanted to give professional soccer a go. Then I went and played for the San Jose Earthquakes U23s, again, did well, and it kind of reaffirmed that I'm like right there, I can play pro. So I talked to my parents, I talked to my girlfriend at the time, Mimi, who's now my fiance, um, just really mulling over the decision thinking about everything, trying to prepare for it, trying to set up as many opportunities as possible. If I were to drop out in the future, setting up, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. And I just was really just planning, talking to people, setting up as much as I can. 
so that when I dropped out, it wasn't going to be like, okay, now what? I wanted to have as many opportunities as possible. So I think it was a lot of talking to close, you know, family members, my girlfriend, talking to friends, teammates, coaches, and then just trying to set myself up with as many opportunities as possible. Um, yeah. And I think that was pretty much it. And then after dropping out, like when I was dropping out, it, it was exciting. I was kind of excited to be done with school. If I'm being honest, no more tests, no more studying. Uh, but I also was a little nervous. Like I, you know, it's a big decision. And, and when you drop out a lot of people kind of judge you for that. A lot of parents were judging me for that. And I, I, I really wanted to prove people wrong and show that I wasn't making a dumb mistake. Uh, so hopefully I did that. <laughs> Um, next question is from the Hafiz Basha and he asks, do you still recommend or use the rice method? Um, if you guys are not familiar with the rice method, that's rest, ice, compression, elevation, whenever you like sprain an ankle or get injured. Um, and this is a very tough one for me and, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I'm not a, a personal trainer. I'm not a, uh, athletic trainer. I'm not a physio. I have no credentials at all, but there has been more and more research coming out. Um, the icing and doing the rice method is not the best form of like recovery. And the person, the doctor who came up with the rice method actually retracted that like principle and basically said, no, the rice method is not what you should do. But yet it's still kind of around in the, the sports community of like, you know, once you get injured, you ice it, you elevate it, you compress it and you try to reduce the swelling. But a lot of doctors and research is coming out that's saying the swelling is kind of a natural process to that healing process. And by delaying the swelling, reducing the swelling, you're delaying the recovery process and actually could be making that injury even last longer. So I personally, I don't do the rice method unless it's very, I'm looking for a short term fix. Like, let's say I like got a, a dead leg or I sprained my ankle and I have like the championship game next weekend. I would ice it to get the swelling down for a short term fix. But usually I, I really don't ice or do any of the rice method. Um, cause I'm, I'm really concerned about that long term, not just feeling good for today or tomorrow, feeling good for the season, feeling good for the week, feeling good for the full you know, my full career. So that's what's kind of, that's what's kind of going on. But again, talk to qualified professionals. Don't, don't just listen to me. Next question from Tommy Oros. And he asks thoughts on meditation. So I did 31 days of meditation straight where a minimum of 15 minutes or 10 minutes, uh, over the month of December. And I, I loved it. I really, really enjoyed meditation at the beginning. I didn't like it. I thought for the first two weeks, it was a pain in, pain in the ass. If I'm being honest, um, just boring. And then I kind of started seeing it as a challenge and trying to try to really focus on my thoughts and try to focus and, and have my mind clear or just like, just even focus on where my thoughts kind of run naturally. And I started to see the benefit of just, uh, being able to really be in tune with your mind. And it sounds so corny, but just being able to listen to your thoughts and trying to separate that, like the the anxiety that you get from thinking about, you know, all the stuff you have to do or or thinking about, you know, bad stuff that could go wrong throughout your day. You kind of separate the feeling of that and you just kind of notice that, okay, this is where my mind drifts off to. So I did like that. and and to, But to be honest, I haven't really done meditation other than that, that month of December. I always tell myself I want to do more of it, but it is always, it's on the... It's on the to-do list always, and it's always, I always kind of skip it. But in an ideal world, I would, I would be meditating every day. 
Next question from Samir49. He asks, should you train at all during the season? I'm going to guess that he's asking about extra individual training. Um, I think you definitely, definitely should, especially like as you guys will see, as you get into team training during season, especially once you come up to the collegiate level, the semi-pro level, the professional level, the training really shifts to um, focusing on tactics and focusing on the team and your individual reps that you might need more of like shooting, crossing, long balls, ball mastery stuff that kind of takes the the backseat to the team. And I think it's so important during the season to focus and do extra stuff focused on the little things that start getting neglected. Cause I mean, throughout the week of training, if you're focused on the team, you're focused on your formations, you might only get like 10 crosses, 10 shots during the week. And that's not enough, I believe, to stay sharp. So I think that you don't have to go out and do an extra session later on in the day, but I'm always, always, always staying after either hitting long balls, working on trapping long balls, crossing and finishing, doing a little bit of two-touch juggling even, or, or just something, a little bit extra, even pinging balls on the ground and just working on that just to get a little extra something to stay sharp in areas that I'm feeling neglected in. But again, that always becomes secondary to how the body's feeling. So if I'm having a hard week of training or I'm feeling sore from the game, then I will reduce that in order to like make my body feel better and recover a little bit better. But it always, it always just depends on how the body's feeling and what I want to work on, what I feel like is being neglected during that week of training. And it differs all the time, but mostly crossing, finishing, stuff like that. Um, Aminol, Aminol, number one, asks, I know you've covered this before, but you can, can you talk in depth about talent versus hard work? Um, so my personal belief on, on talent versus hard work is I think that every person's born with you know, slightly different characteristics. Like everybody, like there's going to be people born a little bit more athletic than other people. There's going to be people born that are going to be naturally be six, four, while another person might be five, six, or another person might be naturally, you know, have a little bit more bounce in their jump and be able to jump a little bit higher. Or there might be even somebody who's, who's naturally a, a quicker learner, you know, or naturally left footed or something. So I think everybody comes, you know, into this world with different starting stats. Um, but I think that it's, it's so wrong to think that like, like even like Messi is a natural talent. Yeah. I mean, I agree. The stuff he does is, is otherworldly, but I think that discredits how much work is actually being done. And sure. He might have like a, a great blend of being a great size, low center of gravity and in, in, insane quickness and agility and top speed even, um, and combine that with like maybe even just like a little bit more natural tendency or touch with the foot or something, but that his skill is not just from natural talent. He might start off with a little bit more natural tendencies, but I think it's just about hard work, training, 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 and not everybody can become a a messy sometimes, no matter how much they train. But I think that majority of people out in the world can become professional footballers if they put in, you know, their 10,000 hours of dedicated of dedicated training into, into the sport. But I just think that most people don't put the 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours in. And then I think they, they kind of blame it to not being naturally gifted as that kind of like a scapegoat. Next question is from Samuel Janetsky. And he asks, what is the importance of talking on the pitch and how can you talk more? Um, 
I think this is a good question. I think so many people, when they think of like talking on the pitch, I think immediately they're thinking of like the basics of like man on or calling for the ball. And uh, that's a hugely important thing to do. You should always be ta- talking to your teammates about when there's a man on or when they can turn or, or yelling for the ball to receive it when you're open. But I think the main parts of communication on the field is organizing your team and getting on the same page as your teammates, especially defensively. I think there's way more talking going on defensively than there is offensively. Offensively is a lot like pretty quick. Um, you can call like point into space, you know, to my feet, real quick things, man on turn. But I think majority of the talking goes on the organization defensively as a unit. You know, uh, for a real quick example, when that ball, you know, I'm playing fullback, let's say, when that ball starts to shift on the opposing team has the ball starts to shift, you know, from center back out to the fullback. I'm talking to my winger constantly, whether he should cut off the middle, cut off the line, whether he can press aggressively, whether he should hold and plug the, the, one of the center mid, like, you know, entry pass into a center mid, whether he should stay back, all these tiny things organizing him. Meanwhile, the center back, my own center back is talking to me, whether I should aggressively start stepping to the winger, whether I need to stay in, whether there's a runner in behind. So I think majority of the talking comes on organizing defensively and talking about you know, what's going on and so that we're all on the same page. Are we all doing a high press and aggressively stepping? Are we all staying compact? Are we all trying to force them wide? Are we forcing them in? That's where majority of the talking and communication I think is done. Everything else, what you kind of immediately think of is, is kind of like, it's, it's definitely a part of the game, but it's not majority of the communication. The most important part I think is organizing. Um, next question is from handy Manny spammy. That's a funny name. Uh, with social media soccer niche niche being so saturated, how can I stand out? Um, so in terms of like being a content creator, kind of shifting gears now, being content creator, especially for like in the football community, it definitely is pretty saturated. There's so many Instagram, TikToks, YouTube accounts, and and um, pages that are just publishing a lot of great content. And it is hard to stand out versus, you know, 10 years ago, or even when I started YouTube six years ago. Uh, But you definitely can stand out. And I think what's so important about that is not just being a general soccer niche, like being like, oh, yeah, I'm just, you know, a a standard soccer channel that posts how to take a free kick. And then, you know, just random the the classic videos that you see time and time again. Uh, I think it's more about finding your even your specific niche in the in the soccer niche in general so like for me my specific niche is being a professional footballer showing the behind the scenes of this uh, of this job uh, of showing the behind the scenes of the reality of professional soccer that's my niche you know and i think that that's why my channel did well in the beginning and that's why my channel i think it continues to do pretty well is because there's not many professional footballers there are uh, definitely a handful, but there's not a ton out there doing that. And I think anytime you see a channel that kind of pops up, they found their niche earlier, whether that was the free kickers, whether that was F2, whether that was me and Michael Cunningham or whoever, they found their niche and they kind of dominated that and grew very quickly. Even like Josh from Soccer Reviews for You, there's not many or there wasn't many football boot review 
YouTube channels when he started, you know, and that's how you kind of grow. So my advice is find your niche, dominate that niche, and then just make quality content that people actually want to watch. And I think that it will take care of itself if you be consistent with it for years and years and years. Uh, next question is from Elio Ringer and he or she asks, how do you prepare mentally for a match? Uh, I like to be very, very like low key, calm, joking around even before a match. I, I think I stress myself out too much if I have the hype up music and I'm like being, I, I don't want to say taking it too seriously, but, uh, being too serious, I guess. I mean, I guess that's the best way to say it, but I really like being very relaxed going into the game. Like in the locker room, I'm joking around. I, I'm messing around with people uh, because I'm the, the type of person who's never needed to be hyped up for a game. I usually get too overly hyped and I start running around almost like a chicken without its head on and 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 taking 20 yard touches. And I need to be like, it's always like Shelly, breathe, calm down, relax. It's never come on. Let's go. Let's go. You know? So that's what I found out about me is I need to be the person who takes a deep breath before the game starts. I need to relax. I need to be calm. I need to be in a good state of mind. And the best way to do that is, is not over hyping up the game, thinking too much about it. I'm joking around, you know, watching TV before the game, no hype up music. Um, yeah. And I think you kind of find what works for you. I know players that are the exact opposite than me. And they found that hyping up for the game is what helps them. So for me, I need to be calm. For other players, maybe not. Maybe it's a mixture of the two. Uh, you got to find out what works for you. Next question is from Brad Bowden. And he asks, when coming through the ranks, what advice from a fellow pro has stuck with you? Uh, actually, kind of funny, going off that last question, that was a big piece of advice that stuck with me is that uh, – I, especially when I was just entering into the pro game or in college, it was always just so like, like high energy, like high strung panic. And, and one of my teammates was like, yo, like before the ball comes to you, like you're almost doing like happy feet. Like you need to chill, take a deep breath, be calm. And the game's going to slow down. If you're frantic, the game feels frantic. If you're slow and you calm down, and you really take a second to like be a little bit more, uh, you have to be urgent and, and, but calm at the same time. And he was like telling me, you have to take a deep breath when that call, when that ball comes to you, analyze what's going on in the field. And then at the right moment, change the direction, change the pace and explode, you know? And so that kind of changed my mind of, instead of going hundred percent speed all the time, it was slow, calm, you know, for a majority of the time with moments of high speed explosion. And, and that I think really helped me. And another big piece of advice, um, that I, I, I got as well is, is what was I going to say? I just had another piece of advice that I had. I just lost it. Dang. Um, I can't remember what the other piece. I'll, I'll come back to that if I remember it. Uh, anyway, next question is from, Oh, I remember the other piece of advice it kind of similarly too like your body language, like, again, like I would, the ball would come to me as a right back, especially when I was younger. And you could almost visually see that I was one frantic, be a little bit too overexcited about what was going on. And three, I think I maybe even like a, a tad bit of like nervousness and my body language was showing that. And then that was like a, a pressing trigger for the wingers. It's like this guy press this guy, 
But if you show the body language that you're calm, cool, collected, and that ball comes into you, then it's almost like that winger's like second guesses if he wants to press you. Cause he's like, oh, if I press this guy, he's going to just take a nice touch around me, beat me. Cause he's calm, cool, collected. He's confident, you know? So I think that was a big thing that helped me. Um, next question from Aga Laviz. Do you have a plan for after your career, or how it's looking? Yeah. So after my career, I want to do, I want to have some form of training facility. I want to train players. I want to, uh, really work, focus on the development, the extra training, literally what I do in off season for my off season videos. I want to do that, but with the facility, the same exact things and just focus a lot on players that are at the pro level, semi-pro level, college level, or high level amateur and work on just developing them to become a better player. And, uh, luckily, I mean, with my YouTube channel, with, with how I've set myself up with other streams of income and, and just, uh, what I've been doing so far, I think it's going to be a very easy transition, hopefully, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it, but I definitely, I know that professional soccer is my, is my passion is my true passion. So I'm kind of trying to delay it as much as possible. I don't want to retire. Uh, but I am excited for the next stage of my career as well. I got two more questions from handy man, handy Manny spammy. Um, he says, as a certified nutritionist, any thoughts on the keto diet for soccer players? Um, to be honest, I think, you know, not just being completely unpolitically correct. I think it's a shit diet for footballers. I think that it can be done. And I think that, um, I'm sure there's players out there that do the keto diet and, and, and feel that it's a great diet for them. And I think go for it. Like, sure. If it works for you, that you think it works for you. Awesome. But limiting your carbohydrates as a high level athlete to me just doesn't make sense. I know you can get energy from fat. Um, and it's possible, but I think that carbs, especially complex carbs, uh, even simple digesting carbs before a game. I mean, that's just what's been, as of now, scientifically proven to be the best for high-level footballers. So it doesn't make any sense to, to me to go keto. And I think that the benefits that you get from it, I think I think a lot of them are kind of, uh, I don't want to say false, but maybe a lot of them placebo, maybe a lot of them not as, as big of a benefit as they claim to be. That's just my thoughts. Uh, if you like it, go keep doing it, but I will never, I will never do a keto diet, especially as a footballer. Um, and if you're trying to lose, if you're thinking like you're doing it, you got to ask yourself, why am I doing this? If you're doing it to, to try to lose weight, I mean, you can lose weight on a normal diet with carbs. If you're trying to do it because someone told you that you have more energy, just consuming fat instead of as much carbs than, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, the next question from Handy Manny Spammy as well. What are some things that college soccer taught you that has helped with your career? Um, so many things. I mean, uh, first off, I think that college soccer was, was really the first time where I was training with the team five days a week, you know, games on the weekends, two to three lifting sessions with the team. So I think the first thing it taught me was kind of like how to manage your body in that kind of professional lifestyle environment you know like uh, it wasn't a professional environment in the fact that we weren't getting paid but we were training working out doing all the same things that pro teams do the double days with the team and everything so i think the first thing it taught me was uh how to manage the body how to take care of the body 
and uh, how to work out, fuel yourself so that you know your body can handle doing that professional level of workload. And then I think too, I mean, other than that, it's 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 just a higher level of play than the amateur game. So I think that I mean, technically, college soccer is amateur, but it it was a higher level than club soccer. And I think again, it just taught me a little bit faster speed of play. I was with better players. You know, you're training more. You start seeing other players training a little bit harder. And the level's a little bit higher, so it's just like another baby step up in that that constant progression upwards of a higher and higher levels and be, becoming a better and better player. Uh, but yeah, I think those were the main things. Next question from Brad Bowden, 96 again. He asks, what's the strangest superstition a teammate, current or ex, has had? That's a funny one. Um, I had one teammate that had to lace up his boots put his socks, his, his shin pads, everything on in the, in the exact same order. He had to go like left leg first with the, uh, with the sock, right leg with the sock, right leg with the boot, left leg with the boot. It's just really it's funny about that. Uh, other than that though, there's not many crazy superstitions that I've seen. Most players are pretty calm about it and they're just like look i just want to have a good pregame meal rest and, and relax the day of the game and you know maybe they don't step on the line when they're stepping on the field but i haven't had any crazy crazy pregame superstition that i've seen or that i know of um again another one from from brad bowden uh have you enjoyed playing right winger recently and is this something you hope to do more of i really enjoy right winger but having said that, I really enjoy left back. I really enjoy right back. I really enjoy when I, the few games that I've played center back, I really enjoy, you know, I just like really enjoy being on the field. I do enjoy the attacking aspect of right winger. And I think it's a, it's a position that I think I'm pretty well suited for as well. Um, and I, I think it's, it's fun to be in the attack a little bit more. I do like the building phase. You get more touches on the ball as a right back. Um, but you know, you also are kind of a pressing trigger trigger. And I think that, uh, sometimes it's not that fun. If you, if you're on a team that gets pressed high and you don't have that many options, it can be kind of a, a, a shitty position, but yeah, I've been really enjoying right winger and honestly, I hope I do play more at that position this season. Uh, but it's all comes down to the coach and what the team sees the, or what the coach sees you helping or how the coach sees you helping the team. If, if, you know, if Mike and CN sees me playing right winger this season, I'll play right winger. If he sees me playing right back, I'll play right back. If he sees, thinks I can be better help to the team on the bench, then I'll sit on the bench. It's all about what the coach sees, what he thinks, and you could just kind of listen and, and do your best wherever that is. Uh, and that's where kind of like how I ended up at right back in the first place. Uh, next question, how important is it to be surrounded by people with the same goal? I think that's very, very important. Um, and college was the biggest example of this. I was surrounded by my house that I lived in. We had five footballers in the house and we all wanted to go pro. And out of the five of us, I think four of us ended up signing professional contracts. And having all, uh, all of us having the same mindset one of us would be like, yo, I'm going to the field. I want to work on some shooting. Chris, like a goalkeeper, do you want to come out and play goalkeeper? He's like, yeah, for sure. I'll come out, get some extra reps in. And then I'm sitting in the house. I'm like, well, now I got to go. If these guys, my teammates are going out doing extra work, I have to go now, you know, because I'm competitive. I want to work harder than them. I want to get better. 
And on the flip side, if I lived in a house where, you know, everybody was, you know, just kind of like lazy or like sitting around smoking weed and just like, just not have that same ambition, you kind of get sucked into that as well. When they go, instead of saying, yo, let's go to the field and get extra training in, if they're just saying like, yo, like let's just have a couple beers and watch TV, you know, maybe you're going to have the mental strength to go, no, I'm going to go out and train. But I think it's very enticing to be like, yeah, you know, I'll have a beer. I'll sit down with you, watch some TV. So I think it's so important to be surrounded with people that you, that you, that you really want to be more like, because I think that it's, I think that's, it, that's what ends up happening. You're kind of like a reflection of the five people that you spend the most time with. So make sure the, those five people are people that you want to be like, you know, next question from Josh Gonzo. Uh, at what age did you make the Academy team? I never made an Academy team. I was never good enough when there was one, but there was only Academy team for one year out of my youth career from U11 through U18, only my U16 season was there an academy team in the entire state of Oregon. So, I mean, cause the, the West side Timbers, the Timbers Academy didn't start up until like 2012, 2013 or something. And by then I was already in college. So you guys now listening to this, that are at the academy age, you guys, especially in America are in a, like the golden era of, of football here in the country. Because I mean, just to show you, I'm 28 and I'm not even that old. But back then, you know, <laughs> back when I was a kid, there was not even an academy team in my entire state. So it's come a long, long way. And again, you know, I I didn't even make one when there was one with FC Portland. Next question from Joey Carney 10 asks: Would you rather play in the MLS and not get much playing time, or play in the USL and play? Uh, 100%, I would rather go to the MLS team and be in a situation where I'm, I don't have that much playing time because I, I would see that as a challenge to try to get on the field, try to become a starter. And I, I, my goal, my the way I frame my view of, of my career is I always want to play at the highest possible level and try to become the best footballer I possibly can become. And going to the MLS and being a bench player is would reach that goal of playing at the highest possible level level and trying to push myself to develop as the best possible player I possibly can be. Um, but I mean, you know, it'd be hard because I think the most important thing in the, in terms of like your general happiness as a footballer is how you're performing on the field and it'd be tough to ride the bench, but that's something that like, you know, I would definitely want to take as a challenge and, and try to do. Okay, the next question from Easington United asks, are there any old teammates you're surprised didn't make it pro? If so, why do you think this is? Um, there's not just a few. There's literally dozens, 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 everything from, I mean, when I was 18 years old, I was not like the standout player in my, even my club team. I wasn't the standout player in my city of Portland there was probably a good 15 to 20 players that were at my level or better players than me at that time, like easily just in my age group, probably way more. I mean, I was, I made, you know, like all state first team, all state in high school. I was on the, the best or the second best club team in the state of Oregon, but there were many, many players out there that were better players than me at the time. But I think out of those, 
you know, even just who I know out of a couple club teams, I think there was only two of us that really ended up playing pro from that year. And I think the other one has already retired now and, and didn't have as illustrious of like a career, even as me. And I haven't had the craziest career at the pro level. And that's because it's, it's every player has so much potential. And, and like I said it, it earlier in this podcast, it's not just about like, like how good it's not just the best player at 17 years old becomes the best pro player. Sometimes that happens, but there's so much potential out there for players, but so many players end up quitting. So many players can't take it. It's so they don't have the mental toughness, you know, whatever they get cut from a team and they quit. There's just so many reasons. So, I mean, there were dozens of players at my U18 club team, dozens of players in the state of Oregon, dozens of players on my college team that never went on to play pro, dozens of players at the semi-pro level. There's just so many players that just don't end up going pro, and there's just for so many different reasons. But mostly, I think it's because of the mentality, like that mental strength of being like, I'm going to be a pro. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to travel wherever. I'm willing to give up my life, set, make all these sacrifices in order to become a pro. Because so many players would become a pro if that contract fell in their lap, but they're not willing to drop out of school. They're not willing to take a $500 a month contract in Germany. They're not willing to uh, bounce around every nine months. They're not willing to turn down a $50,000 uh, a year job in you know Portland and turn that down to go and struggle for three months trying to get a $5,000 a year contract. So I think that it's all about that mentality, working hard, training, and and just writing it out and being perseverant, you know. Next question from Bella Zabina, and she asks, what's something about being pro that you never expected or understood until it happened? Uh, I'd say there's two things. The first thing is the amount of free time that you actually have as a pro. I mean, I leave my apartment at 8.30 in the morning, and I go to the facilities I get, you know, I change into my gear. I do an hour of prehab, of like stretching, dynamic stretching, heating up the body, doing my little rehab exercises, prehab exercises. You go out and train for two hours. Maybe you stay after and do an extra 15, 20 minutes of, of crossing, finishing the extra stuff. Then let's say you have an hour of weight lifting in the gym. Then you shower and come home and it's one o'clock in the afternoon you're physically exhausted. You've pushed your body to the limit already. Um, maybe you do a yoga session, let's say, maybe you do a little meditation, maybe you write in a journal or something. And that's like a, a really good day. Still now, what are we looking at? Three, take an hour long nap. Now it's four and you still have the rest of your day from four to 10. And I think when I became a pro, I just didn't realize that, you know, I, uh, that you were pretty much back home at 1 PM and you just have the rest of the day to do whatever you want. And, you know, I know a lot of people are always like, well, why don't you get your second session in? Well, it's, it's, you know, when you're training at the professional level every single day, playing games, doing all that stuff, it's, it becomes unrealistic to do a double session and it becomes more about maintaining and, and watching your body, preparing your body and not overloading the, the body so that you're not going to get injured. Um, you can definitely stay after and do extra stuff. And yeah, you can, you know, when you haven't, don't get that much game time, you can get extra sessions in, but you do have a lot of free time that you just kind of just hang out with. And I think the other thing too is, especially at the, even at the higher levels, but at the lower levels, especially the uh, instability of just nine month contracts and everything about like at the start of every single year, you know, you sign a contract 
And then around September, October, when the season ends in America, uh, you're usually a free agent again. Or even if you're not a free agent, usually you have an option on your contract. So, but still your future is up in the air. So every single nine months now you are into off season and you either go back home or you stay in your city that you have the team with, but you have no idea if you're going to returning to Tulsa or going anywhere. And I mean, this has been my, I've been lucky to come back to Tulsa three years in a row and have a little bit more stability than usual. But before that I went from Sacramento, I went from Iceland to Vancouver, Canada, to Sacramento, to Germany, back to Orange County, California, to St. Louis, Missouri, to New Zealand, and then to Tulsa. And that was within like a five, six year span. So it's just constant instability. It's a lot of fun and it's exciting, but there's a lot of stress that comes with that, especially when you are going months without your phone ringing about op- without any opportunities. And you're like, okay, you're looking at your bank account, just dwindle and dwindle and be like, hopefully I get a contract here soon or else I'm going to have to go back to school and finish my degree or something. Um, next question from Bella Zabina. Again, she asks if you were 40 done playing pro, what's the one thing you would miss most about pro soccer? The, the thing I would miss most is definitely the the locker room banter the being with a group of of 20 to 30 guys every day that become your best friends ever and you're just messing around you're literally just you feel like a kid again just playing around kicking the ball around sure it's stressful it's it's at the pro level it's intense but at the end of the day you're really just you're having fun you're doing something that you love with your best friends. And I think that's what I'm going to miss the most is when I'm done just missing that locker room, missing that locker room environment, the banter, the talking, showing up every single day, seeing your friends. And I think I'm just going to miss that. Like those relationships. Of course, I'm going to miss the the feeling when the, the you know, when the game starts and the, the fans and then game atmosphere and everything. But I think the things I'm going to be missing most is the relationship with my teammates. Um, Next question from Benjamin Limtick. He asks, how would you think, how, how would you think you will cope with the transition after, oh wait, I already answered that one. Ryan Butler, 1703 asks, what made you choose to play in New Zealand of all the countries you could have played in? So again, you know, like when you are a free agent, it's not like you're like, oh, you know what? I'm a free agent now. I'm going to go play in Ireland. And then you just go and buy a ticket to Ireland. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of weeks later, you're playing in Ireland and have a contract there. Usually, even at the highest level, usually you, your agent starts talking to teams. They have to find a team for the right money that wants you. Um, everything has to kind of work out. They need to have your position. They need to have enough foreign spots available. Going back to that previous question, they need to be able to get you the visa. They need to be able to want you Um, and that, and basically that's how it gets set up. It's more of a connection from your agent or a connection that you have with a a friend or somebody that will kind of help you get trials or contacts or help you get that contract. And that's how opportunities really happen. So I didn't just randomly throw a dart on the map. It land on New Zealand and I go, okay, that's where I'm going. I was a free agent. My phone was dead for a month which was waiting for somebody, my agent, or waiting for any opportunities to come in. I was sending out my highlight videos, sending out my CV, reaching out to all these teams, but nothing was coming. 
And then randomly I got someone emailed me and said, Hey, I know this manager of this club team in, in Wellington, New Zealand. Would you be okay if I spoke on your behalf and sent them your highlight video and CV and see if I could set something up for you? I said, sure, for sure. Definitely. And then that's how I ended up going to New Zealand. So it's not like I chose New Zealand. New Zealand kind of chose me. Of course I said yes, but that's how it kind of happened. And that's usually how it happens. Um, it comes from somebody reaching out to you or your agent and saying, here's an opportunity. Here's a connection that I have pursue this. Uh, next question from Luke Froman. And he asks, how can defenders practice defense, especially when alone? You should not practice defense. This is my opinion, but you should not practice defending by yourself. I think that's pretty, I don't want to say stupid. I think it's pretty, it's a waste of time. I think, I think you can work on agility. I think you can work on your speed. I think you can work on, on so many other things that will help with defending in general. And even more than that, I think if you're by yourself that you should be working on your technical fundamental skills, your long balls into a goal, your, even your shooting, your dribbling, your first touch against a wall, your juggling, your wall juggling. There's so many things that you can work on by yourself that's gonna benefit you as a defender or as a player in general other than just shadow defending an imaginary defender. Now, then when you have a partner out of the field, then you can do 1v1s. I think the best way to work on defending and 1v1 defending is to defend very good players. One of the best things I did this last offseason was go up against Rubio Rubin and Chase Boone and Crystal Michelson and other Portland Timbers 2 players and just do 1v1s and just literally work on defending very skilled players. That's how you should work on 1v1 defending. And then when you're by yourself, you work on areas of your game that you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck, whatever that is, wall passing, wall juggling, shooting, crossing, dribbling, cone weaves, ball mastery, work on that kind of stuff. Um, next question from Flobatier21 asks, top five drills or even 10 drills that you did that you think are the most important? Um, I would say number one, I'm going to say number one is, is 1v1s. I think that's one of the most important drills, I think. Just 1v1, you versus somebody else, going to goal, going to mini goals, just doing that. I think two, I'm going to have to say rondos. I think just playing 5v2, possession, rondos, one touch. Just working on speed of play, decision-making, passing. Three, I'm going to say small side, 3v3s, 4v4s, 5v5s, 2v2s, whatever. Just small-sided play. Uh, Four, I'm going to go with some form of passing combination where you're working on just passing, moving, receiving, one, two touches, maybe pinging a little bit longer of a pass in. That would be number four. Then five, I would say some form of crossing, finishing, or some shooting drill where it's like a passing combination leading into a, a shot or a finish and then a cross and a finish. I think that like right there, those five drills, especially when you have a small group are fantastic. And if you're by yourself, my, my, my drills would be like wall juggling or wall passing, um, some form of ball mastery drill. It'd be some dribbling thing, more like one V one at a cone. And then you have like your, your shooting on goal that you would do like a, a step over a move and then a shot on goal or something like that. Uh, next question from Lucas memories. Yeah. Asks, Best piece of advice you've ever gotten? 
I would say that it's, it's probably from my dad. And he basically told me, I mean, this was back, I remember where it was even. I was in Germany and he's kind of ingrained this into me my whole life, but it really sunk in in Germany. And I was, I was, I don't want to say I was in a low spot in Germany, but I was in a lower spot than usual because I was making absolutely no money pretty much. Just barely surviving in a little one bedroom apartment in Germany in the, in the attic and not struggling, but I was, uh, pretty lonely and I just was kind of having a hard time just kind of adjusting to the, the pro life or, I mean, at that point, like semi pro life, I guess, but just being by myself in a foreign country. And I, and I was seeing my friends and, and who graduated college get nice cushy, you know, jobs in San Francisco and San Diego and Portland. And I was pretty jealous of that just because I saw them going out for brunch and mimosas on Sunday. And I saw them having fun and going out to bars on the weekends. And I saw them having their nice apartments that were furnished pretty nicely and, and just living like adult life. And I was jealous of that because I had a mattress on the floor and I was living kind of rough and I was making no money and I was playing footy, but um, it just wasn't at the full professional environment that I wanted. And I kind of was talking to my dad like, Hey, I think I'm going to quit. Like I can make way more money if I just go back to school, finish, get my degree and, and get a real job. And he's like, he's like, you're thinking short term. Like you have to go to 20 years out when you're 40, 50 years old and ask yourself, or even when you're on your deathbed and ask yourself like, what are you going to regret? You know, looking back at your life, are you going to regret turning down this opportunity in Germany, are you going to regret going and getting a normal, boring job? And you know, if that question is no, I won't regret it, then go do it. But at the time I was like, you know what? Yeah, it kind of sucks right now, but I think I would regret it. I think I would regret not continuing to play professional football when I am physically able to do that. And that's always like a question. Now I live my life by thinking ahead to my deathbed, thinking ahead when I'm 50, 60, when I have grandkids or kids and asking myself, would you regret this decision? And that's how I've always kind of lived my life, you know? And, uh, even I've wanted to start a YouTube channel. I thought that'd be fun. I wanted to start vlogging, but I was scared because I didn't want my friends to make fun of me. I was nervous putting up content and having people not like it or getting a lot of hate. But I asked myself again, like when I'm 50, would I regret like not trying to be a YouTuber, not trying to vlog. And I would have said, yeah, like I, I would regret that. So I started my YouTube channel. Um, so I think that was the best piece of advice I've ever gotten. And it was, uh, from my dad kind of throughout my whole life, but mainly when I was in that, in that spot in Germany. Next question, uh, is from it's the real Eli. And he asks, how much do you train in a day? Uh, so the most I train in a day, and this is now as a pro, but the most I, I train in the day is an off season because you can just push. I love off season because you can just push your body just to the limit because it doesn't matter how sore you are the next day. It doesn't even really matter to be honest. If you get even a muscular, you know, like you strain your quad a little bit because it's like, there's no games coming up. And I mean, that's, you don't want to just go out and exercise or work out until you strain your quad. But you know, that's kind of like how off season is. So I love off season for that. And, and off season, you know, we would go to the field and train for minimum two a light session, two hours, a hard session up to three hours of just one V ones. Ron, I mean, you guys seen a lot of the off season videos, but that's basically 
the hardest we train. And, you know, as a kid, you can go out when you're, when you're 12, 13, when you're five, whatever, even 16, 17, you can go out and train four or five hours because it's at a lower intensity. It's not as demanding on the body as a, as a pro going out with full speed, full intensity. Um, so, you know, as a kid, I was training more, but right now the most I train is probably three hours in a day. And then on top of that, adding in another hour of weightlifting. Um, so in total four hours a day, that's the maximum, maximum, maximum in the middle of off season, you know, but now, uh, usually our training sessions are between an hour and a half and two hours being the longer one. And then I'll typically stay after for 15 to 30 minutes doing crossing, finishing, whatever. So shorter. And, you know, even if it's the day before a game, the sessions might only be an hour long. Um, and then I'll stay after, you know, for 15 minutes. So on the minimum side, like an hour, 15 on the higher slide up to like two and a half hours. Um, and then twice a week doing the hour of weightlifting on top of that. But it's not a, the, the amount, like the time isn't a crazy amount throughout the day, because again, as a pro, like it's so much it, one, the intensity is so high, the level so high two hours at the pro level in a professional level training session is a lot different than two hours in your backyard, you know, training with when you're eight years old, playing one V one with your brother, you can do that for eight years old, or you can do that for eight hours a day when you're eight years old. Um, and then just two, because also the, the focus is being healthy and hundred percent for the games in season. So that's kind of what you want to focus and train for. It's more about sharp, consistent, uh, quality sessions that are a little bit shorter so that you can feel fresh ready for the games um, but yet still sharp in the games uh, next question from Wes J King he asks how many times a week do you gym in season <laughs> I kind of just already asked that or answered that but with the team we have two team lifts a week that are about an hour long two full body sessions uh, and then you know I'll do I do prehab every single day where it's like you have like the typical like balancing on the BOSU ball, doing the ankle strengthening, doing even the foot strengthening, doing a lot of like problem areas, maybe a little bit extra hamstring or groin or, or lower abs or whatever that is. I do that every single day before training, every time before the game. But in terms of actual gym sessions, two per week minimum. And then if like, you know, if it's a lighter week or I want to make a little bit more of a push, I might get an extra gym session in that week as well. So up to three. Um, Philip Rice asks, favorite thing about being a pro and worst thing about being a pro? My absolute favorite thing is kind of what I talked about, what I'm going to miss the most. It's just showing up every day, feeling like a kid again. And like, it's just, there's, it literally is a dream come true. I, every single day I wake up, I go and hang out with all of my friends, my teammates, I kick a ball around, I play games, I play rondos, I play small-sided games, I play 11v11, I play two-touch, I play games all day long. It's at a high level, it's competitive, and it's it gets intense, but they're still games. And then I go and work out, and, and then I come home and I take a nap, and it's just that the lifestyle is just so much fun, and you're doing it with your friends, and you're basically like who become your family, and that every single day, is the lifestyle is just so much fun and it's just crazy that you get paid to do it um however having said that it's not all sunshine and rainbow rainbows that's only the reality of it when you're playing when you're you know healthy when your team is winning 
when uh when when there's just so many other factors about it when you're performing well i mean if you're in a a rut and you're not performing well it's not fun like that it's stressful if your team's losing you're not showing up and joking around and having fun um if you're injured of course you're in a deep dark hole sometimes so the highs and when everything's going right it's amazing but the worst thing is that you have really, really low lows. And not only do you have low lows, but you have low lows and you're usually separated from your friends, your family, your hometown, and you're kind of isolated in your bubble. And I think when you're by yourself, especially when Mimi's not here and everything, or when I was in Germany, um, it, it's, it's just hard. You get lonely because you kind of just miss, like I said, you miss the freedom to be able to go to, out to brunch and have mimosas. You miss the freedom of going out and hanging out with people on a Friday night and, and not worrying that you have a game the next day or something. Uh, I kind of miss that freedom and the carefreeness of, of just what normal people can do and stuff. Um, but I'm obviously I'm willing to sacrifice that to live like my dream life of being a pro footballer. Next question is from Ashish Pariha. And he asks, how do you balance YouTube and training? So for me, it's really easy. I mean, like I said, you're home. I mean, even after your longest, longest days where you have team film, where you're reviewing the the team, you know, the next team you're about to play for 45 minutes, you have a two and a half hour training session, you have weights, you have team lunch, you shower, you're still getting home at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, And even I take an hour nap pretty much every day. So it's 3 p.m. now. And then, I mean, what do you, most players are, I think, kind of hang out with their families, watch TV, relax, do whatever. And for me, I just get bored. Like I get bored with too much free time. I love watching TV and hanging out, but I can only do a little bit of that every day. I need to be doing something. And for me, it's it's just easy. Instead of sitting here and watching Modern Family for five hours, I'll watch it for one hour and I'll spend four hours editing up a YouTube video or, or filming a Two Minute Tuesday or something. And I've always gone with the approach, I've said this so many times, but I am a footballer, that does YouTube. I'm not a YouTuber that does soccer. So anytime I'm feeling overwhelmed, anytime that I feel like um, I'm too busy, I don't have enough time in the day, I sacrifice YouTube, I sacrifice the video editing, I sacrifice the podcast, I sacrifice Become Elite uh, for my footballing career. I'm never going to work on a video and stay up till 2 a.m. and sacrifice my sleep so I, 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 you know, I'm not getting my full eight hours for the next day. I'm never going to skip a training session or a gym uh, with a team or anything in order to edit a podcast. It always is football first, uh, YouTube second. And I really haven't found that hard of a time to balance the two just because you really do have so much free time. Next question from Oliver Oroskov asks, what's your opinion on overtraining? Where is the line and when do you know when you're overdoing it. So with overtraining, um, it, it's not just a line in the sand where it's like, oh yeah, once you go up to, you know, six sessions a week, that's, if you do anything more than that, that's when it's overtraining. It really, it can move. So like overtraining for me when, you know, like let's say now might be doing seven sessions during the week the plus, you know, a little bit more individual ball mastery. But I think, you know, even going, looking at off season, I was training like three hours a day, like crazy amounts. And, and so your limit, you can push it further and further and further. Your limit of overtraining 
if you progress up the workload every single week. What happens is a lot of players are training twice a week with their team, maybe a game on the weekend, and they go, you know what? This is this next week, I'm gonna go professional lifestyle. I'm gonna train every single day. And they jump and they go from zero to 100, jump straight in, and then they get hurt, and then that's overtraining. What you should do is do, okay, instead of two times a week, I'm gonna train three times a week for the next week or two. Then I'll go to four times, then five times, then six times. That, and then you can, then you can manage that, your body can adapt to that, and it's not overtraining. Um, having said that, you know, overtraining though is, is basically when your body can't handle the amount that you're training at that time. So anytime your body starts to break down, that's like little muscular injuries, a hamstring strain, a quad strain, just overall general fatigue and wear and tear on the body. It's something that you just have to feel and you have to basically, honestly, sometimes you have to kind of like experience it and get injured to be like, okay, that was the limit. That's where I push myself to. And over your full career now for me being 28, I know exactly when I'm like, you know what, uh, in off season, I'm like, you know what, I need to pull myself out of the shooting drill. I need to stop. I need to take tomorrow off because my body is just feeling very, very fatigued. So it's hard because I don't, I can't give a solid answer, but one, you can continue, you can push back your, that uh, limit of overtraining by progressing up the workload week after week. And two, it's one of those things where you just have to listen to your body. And sometimes you have to cross that line, get injured, hurt yourself to really understand, okay, that's what a muscle strain feels like. Okay. That's what too much fatigue or too much soreness feels like. You know, you almost have to experience it. It's hard just to explain it. Uh, next question is from Sultan NJ 16. And he asks, what do, what is for you? What is for you to most Hold on, I gotta decipher this. Okay, what is what for you is the most important thing to succeed as a professional soccer player? Um, I would say your your character and like your mental strength, your mentality, I guess. Um, because like I said, there's so many players at the U18 club level, at the college level, at the semi-pro level that can go play pro. Honestly, I think 90% of those players have what it takes to go to go and become a pro player, um, but yet not 90% of them do. I wouldn't even say, I don't even think 10% of them do. Um, but you have to be 100% committed, like I said, willing to do whatever it takes, willing to send out 100 emails, have that like, I don't care how it happens, I don't care if it happens in five years, I don't care if I have to send out 10,000 emails, I don't care if I have to go to, 10 open combines, 10 open trials, travel to Iceland's third division and go play for 500 euros and, and grind it out over there. Like you just have to have that mentality of like, I want to do this. And then I think that you need to be, have that consistent, dedicated mentality of like, I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to say I want it. I'm not just going to say like, yeah, I want to be a pro and only train when I want to. You have to just, you really have to become a pro and enter into that pro lifestyle of eating the right thing, sleeping the right amount, doing the prehab, doing the stretching, doing all the extra training, doing everything, like everything that comes along with it. You have to be doing that for years beforehand. And I think that so many players just don't really want to do that. They want to have like, they want to be a pro, but yet they don't want to give up their weekends. So they want to be a pro, but yet they're not willing to go across the world and play for, you know, 
a, a small contract. They want to be a pro, but yet, you know, I don't want to send out those 10,000 emails. <laughs> I want to be a pro, but I don't want to have like to go to an open trial, you know? So that's where I think that's what happens. And I think you need to have that mentality of like, I'm literally willing to do whatever it takes. And I'm not just tweeting that. I'm not just saying, yeah, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I actually am willing to f- pursue any opportunity that comes. I'm willing to work every single day. And I, I, I'm, and I've been doing that for years and years and years to prepare for this. Okay. Next question is from Ristovich Strahinja, Strahina. Uh, with which European competition can you compare the USL level? So I, I've only played in Germany and I, and in Germany specifically, I've only played in the, I've only trained with the Regionalliga, the Oberliga and the Verbandsliga. And that's the fourth, fifth and sixth division. I, from what I've seen and what I've experienced, the, the Regionalliga, the fourth division is a very good league, but I would still, you know, I definitely think the USL is a higher caliber than the regu- the fourth division in Germany. Um, I'd never had an opportunity to train or to play, or I've, I've watched a, a third division, a Dreite Liga um, team train and, a, and play, but it's so much different watching the game than actually being there and training. So I don't feel comfortable saying exactly how the USL stacks up against the Dreite Liga, uh, but I, I am pretty confident to say the USL is a high, higher caliber overall than the uh, fourth division of Germany. I've had a lot of friends play in England and they equate the USL level to uh, the league two. Uh, this is not my experience. I've not played over in England. I, I you know, I don't take my, my word for it because I, I haven't fully experienced that. I have never trained with a league two team, but that's what they say. And that's kind of like, if you look at like the global league rankings on websites where they kind of rank all the teams and rank the leagues, I think they put the USL like right above the league two or right at the league two level. Um, I think the, I forgot what the website is, but if you Google like uh, professional leagues worldwide rankings, like they have everything and they kind of give all the, the best leagues in the world and they rank them. You can look at that. I think that's the best thing, best resource I've found. And the people that I've noted that have played over in England, that's what they kind of say as well. But I know I'm going to get hate for that and everything, but that's just, that's just what I've, I've experienced. Other than that though, I haven't experienced enough or haven't talked to enough players to really give me an accurate representation other than those two countries. So that's, that's the best I can give you at this time. Um, Alexander Narayanan asks, what is the difference between the locker room morale from youth to pro soccer? Uh, to be honest, <laughs> there's not much changes in terms of the, uh, the, the, in the locker room, the banter, the fun. I mean, that's why like, I love it so much because it's the same exact like fun and the banter with the teammates and everything that, that I felt like when I was with my earliest club soccer days, just having fun, making fun of people, talking shit, like doing it, just banter like that. It still is exactly like that. And I love that. And that's probably, like I said, the thing I'm going to, I'm going to miss the most once I'm retired. Um, like we still do all the jokes that you guys probably do as well. We talk about, Hey, do you know Candace? Like we, we talk about all the same stuff. Uh, but it just is, uh, you know, at the same time we can turn on the professional intensity a lot more. And I think even though we can joke it and we can have fun and everything, we all know that this is a job and that this is our livelihood 
And yes, we can have fun and we can joke around in the locker room, but we cannot come into training or we can't bring that onto the field with us. As soon as we step on the field, as soon as we turn into, um, as soon as we start playing, it's business. Cause we're not, we're no longer here voluntarily. We're no longer here just like as friends goofing off, like training, this is our job. And if we lose, then it's going to be, we are going to get usually paid less next year. It's going to be harder for us to find a job. They might cut us from FC Tulsa. So we balance that complete having fun, joking morale in the locker room. And we balance that completely with a hundred percent business when we need to. And this is our job. This is our livelihood. And you know, we all are very competitive professional athletes that all want to start. We all want to win. We all want to win a trophy. The next question is from James Davies, 886. I just got three questions left for you guys. Um, this question is from James and he asks, what's the hardest thing? Uh, what, what am I doing? I feel like I've answered this like six times. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, what's the hardest thing about being pro? I've already answered that. Isaac 20 asks, how do you feel about the college route to become a professional footballer? Um, so I think I have a different opinion than a lot of people. I see, especially nowadays, college soccer getting so, so much, um, so much shit like online, to be honest, just from everybody really, really hating on it. And I agree that the college soccer route is not the best route if you want to be a pro. I think the academy route and then going straight over to Europe, obviously, ideally is better. Uh, but having said that, I mean, it's not, it doesn't always work out that way. And so many academy players, find themselves at 18 19 years old and all of a sudden there's no pro teams knocking on their door there's no pro contracts the the team that they're with doesn't want to sign them and they find themselves in a in a tough situation and you know if you're not being recruited and you're not being talked to by the best teams in in Europe or even signing homegrown deals with the MLS you're probably if you want to go and try to pursue a pro contract you're probably going to be making very little money and I really like college soccer in America because you can continue to be in that pro environment pretty much where you're training every single day at a high level, you're getting games in, uh, you can play with so many pro teams in the off seasons and over summer and everything, but you can still be in that environment and continue to try to progress your game and continue to, to keep the dream alive to play pro all while getting an education and a backup plan of of what you want to do after your life because i've seen players in australia I've, I've seen players in in um germany where you know it's they kind of stopped going to school at a very young age in order to become a pro and then that pro life doesn't work out for them as they imagined it would and now they're working kind of dead-end jobs and they don't have the best um careers and, and they're struggling so I think that, yeah, the best route for sure is to go academy and then straight into the pro environment. But I think you should try that. But if it's not coming to fruition and you're 18, 19, 20 years old now and you're not getting hit up by pro teams and have a ton of pro opportunities, I think college soccer is still a viable route to the pro game. Yeah, it's harder. Yeah, you're only going to be playing, you know, uh, 15, 20 games in a season. And, and then you have to do like weird winter rules and then a spring season, they have to go play USL two and then the PDL or something weird. Um, but you can still, I know so many players still that make good pro careers while still going to college. And I don't think it's, it's as bad as everybody says it says it is. Um, and it's still a very high level. 
So that's, that's, that's my opinion. I think, I think that, you know, people love to hate on, on stuff and there's, you can become a pro as long as you're developing your game, as long as you're getting games in, as long as you're just working hard and training hard. So yeah. Okay. And then the, uh, the very last question from Andrew Meyerson, he asks rank most to least important when choosing a team location, money, the level connection with the coach position. Um, I, this is a really good question. Uh, so I'm going to answer this completely based off of like of me basically in off season as a free agent, let's say I have three or four teams that all want to sign me. Like you're in the, the dream situation now for me, the number one thing that I look at is the, the level, like I've said, my biggest, um, my biggest goal is to play at the highest professional level I possibly can play at. So that's the the number one thing I look for. I'm, I'm I would always, especially right now in my at this point in my career, I'm taking usually the 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 team that I would probably be the most interested in. Number one is which team plays in the best league. You know, if we have a USL team, let's say we have a team over in the first division of of uh, Finland. Let's say we have like uh, fourth division Germany, and we got like MLS then I'm probably going MLS because it's the highest uh, division. But if they're all of the same, they're all in the same division, let's say they're all USL teams, um, then I'm looking at, at this point, I'm looking at game time for me because I want to get games in. I just want to play. So then I'm going to talk to the coach and see how seriously he's recruiting me. If he's saying like, yeah, you know, uh, we got a couple other right backs that we have. I got this, the starting one. You'll be competing with a spot with him. Or if I have another team, that's like, no, you're going to be my, my starting right back. I, I see you being my starter. You're going to be a core group of, uh, in my, the uh, core group of my team that I'm recruiting right now. Then I would probably go more with that. So the first thing we'll look at is the level. Who's the highest level. Um, if there's no standout or they're all at the same level, then I'm looking, okay, where do I believe I can get the most game time in? And then after that, um, I'm probably looking at, uh, I'm looking at probably location or money. I think money is kind of goes with how much that coach is like pursuing you and how badly he wants you. So I think that's kind of tied in with that. So I, you know, if a coach is offering you more money, uh, more of that budget for their salaries, then they're kind of, they're probably pretty serious about recruiting you, but money would be pretty important because you know, this is your career. This is your job. And then I'm after that, I'm looking at location uh, because, uh, you know, I think it's important. I would love to be in a, a city like Portland or San Diego with my family around me or something like that. But at the end of the day, location doesn't matter that much to me. I'll go play in the Faroe Islands and these or I'll go play in, uh, you know, Antarctica if I have to. It doesn't really matter to me. It's all about the level. The, and then the uh, where I can develop the most as a player and um, where the coach will see like me playing the most. And then last, it's it's probably that position uh, because I, I love playing winger. I love playing fullback. I love playing. I just like being on the field. So the actual position doesn't matter too much to me. If, if the coach is like, yeah, I, want, I see you at center back, but it's at a high level and it's in, you know, and I, I think I'm going to get game time, then I'll play center back. You know, that's that's what's important. So anyway, guys, that was the, the Q and a, I hope you guys like this podcast. I'm, I, I like throwing in these Q and a's every now and again, just to mix things up on the, on the podcast channel. 
Uh, let me know what you, what you guys think. If you have uh, any questions you want to ask in the next Q&A, then be sure to follow me on Become Elite on Instagram because I'll randomly throw up a story, ask questions here, and then I'll pick out my favorite ones. So be sure that you're doing that. Other than that, hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. I will catch you guys in the next one. Peace. Peace.